Good morning, everybody. Well, Moses didn't come down the Mount Sinai with a bunch of crazy makers. He came down the mountain with the Ten Commandments, and uh, it's been serving us all well for the last, uh, well, nearly 3,000 years. So that's all good, isn't it? Over 3,000 years. But, however, what happens is um, we create a few of our own little uh, doctrines and have a few of our own little dialogues, and we create these sacred cows amongst ourselves. Now, um, it would be wrong of me to kill a sacred cow, but I want to chase a few out of the paddock over the next... Uh, a little while over the next few weeks. So uh, Rob and Monica are going to help me do that, and we're going to have a few uh, sacred cows that are going to be looked at, things that actually aren't doctrinally accurate, things that have become common practice in our understanding, and things that just need to be addressed. But today I'm taking it easy on you. I'm starting with something relatively simple. I'm talking about trials and challenges and tests that we face. You see, the way in which we interpret a challenge, the way in which we interpret a trial, is, is actually really, really important to us. Because if we interpret some testing time that we're going through as the work of the devil, we're giving the devil a whole lot of glory for something he's probably not even involved with. However, if we're saying that there's an attack from the devil help, happening in your life, and yet it's actually something that God is putting you through, then you will run flat out away from what it is that God is wanting to do in your life. And so what we're going to talk about this morning is the crazy maker of the test or the crazy maker of the trial. These things in themselves aren't crazy. It's the way we treat them. So we're going to have a look this morning at some scripture. We're going to see some characters who are going through a challenging time. But to, to set us up, let's remind ourselves of what it looks like to just have that great relationship going with God, okay? Let's remind ourselves by doing something really simple, by looking at Psalm 1. It says, Blessed is the one who does not walk and step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Just being tapped into God like a source of flowing water, a beautiful picture there of a, a lovely, maybe a palm tree or something, growing dates in its season. Everything does prospers and the leaves don't wither. And so we're told that this is a great place to be. Psalm 1 begins with that. And I think it's a beautiful way to start those 150 songs. However, we find also in the oldest book in the Bible, the oldest book in the Bible, some of you tell me it's Genesis, it's not. The oldest book in the Bible is Job. The oldest book, written book in the Bible is Job. Why do you think it's there as the oldest book? Because it asks the oldest questions. Where are you, God, when life goes bad? Where are you, God, when life goes wrong? Who are you, God, when my life is miserable? Who are you and what are you doing, God, when I'm really struggling? Job asks these questions, and here's one way in which he put it. He said, Blessed is the one whom God corrects. So do not despise the discipline of the Almighty. For he wounds, but he also binds up. He injures, but his hands also heal. So we can see here straight away 
that we have a God who is prepared to hurt us, it would seem, to heal us. A God who would injure us to ensure that we understand what strength and discipline and character building is like. And we go, well, hold on. That doesn't work for me. Because in my theology, anything bad comes from the devil. And if it's from the devil, it's not from God. So therefore, if it's bad, I've got to get it out because the devil's in the bad. Yeah? The challenge that we have is how do we interpret what's bad and how do we know whether it's of the devil or actually something God is wanting to do in our lives? Yeah? Now, I've raised a few kids, just three. <clears throat> and um, there are times in your life when you say, wow, to do what's good for my children, I've got to discipline them. Because if they just keep having this all their own way, they'll grow up to be spoiled brats. Okay? And I don't like spoiled brats. My neighbours don't like spoiled brats. Their grandparents don't like spoiled brats. The school teachers don't like spoiled brats. Okay? The devil loves spoiled brats. You know? So, spoiled brats we will not have. So, we discipline them. We look after them. So, I'm going to start this morning by introducing us to um, a character who we all know extremely well. Extremely well. And this is David. And um, just last week, I spent some time with the Year 13 students who graduated from uh, youth group, and they're heading off to apprenticeships or heading off to uh, university. And so I had an hour or two with them just to talk through some scripture and help them see a little bit more of what they probably were already familiar with. But I felt this would help them on their way to university. So I'm going to start here today with a story that we all know, and this is when David kills Goliath. And we know the story, don't we? David turns up when the battle is going against the Philistines. He rocks in there and he says, Hey, is anybody going to smash that guy? Nah. Oh, well, I'll do it. Good on you, David. So King Saul goes, here's my armor. You can wear that. And so David tries it on. He clunks around the place because it's too big for him. He says, don't worry, mate. I'll do it my way. And uh, he pulls out a slingshot straight between the eyes, off with the Goliath's head. Philistines start running. David becomes a hero. Perfect. Great story, eh? That's the Sunday school version of the story. Let's have a look at what goes on in the story as the story is developing. David has arrived. He's been sent essentially by his father, but probably as much by himself, to bring food to the men on the front line. That include all his older brothers. So he turns up there and he hears this conversation about this, this uh, giant called Goliath and what King Saul would like to have happen to him and what would happen to the person who slays Goliath? It goes like this. Now, the Israelites had been saying, do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his family from taxes in Israel. All right, so this is the guy that goes out to take on the three-meter giant, nine feet tall, Okay, his, uh, his spear weighs 59 kilos. That's what they measured it out at, 59 kilos. So he's a bit of a beast, okay? He's a bit of a beast. And so he comes out morning and night, gets his spear, shakes it in front of the Israelites, say, come on, bring it on, bring it on, I'll take you on. And then he wanders back and all the Israelites are freaking out, going, you do it, okay? So David hears the prize that's been set up for the guy who will kill Goliath, and he hears this. And a little bit further on, just a few verses on, 
uh, we'll call it one, uh, David asked the men standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is the uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? So he's heard about the prize, but it's like, did I just hear that? Goes up to the men. Hey, tell me a bit more about the prize. Yeah, that's right, David. Yep, big, big cash prize, big cash pool. The king's daughter, she's a bit of all right. Hey? And, um, and your whole family will be exempt from taxes. Your brothers, your dad, the whole thing. Pretty good prize, really. Um, so David's there and he's listening to this. And then the scripture tells us that the next verse, he says, they then repeated to him what they'd been saying and told him, this is what we done for the man who kills him. But then further on again, three verses later, it says, he then turned away to someone else and brought up the same matter and the men answered him as before. So in Sunday school, David was a simple hero. He just had killed the lion, killed the bear. That was his, uh, on his CV, bear killer, lion killer. Went up to Saul and said, oh, I'll sort it for you, mate. No worries. Yeah, God's with me, sweet ass. But what we've seen here is this motivation that David had. A very mixed motivation, shall we say. He knows that if he, got, if he takes his skills out into that battleground and kills this guy, he is made. He is set up for life. All right? He's got, um, got the skills and he tells him about the way that he killed the lion and the bear. Goes to King Saul. Saul says, where's my army? He says, no, dude, doesn't fit. Thanks very much. I've got some rocks. Off he goes. Kills Goliath. In the process of killing Goliath, he walks out on the battlefield and goes, who dares defy the, king, uh, the God of Israel? You know, it's like, standing really bold. So he played the part really well. But in behind, he, in his mind, he's sort of like counting out the king's money, walking up the aisle with the king's daughter, you know, being celebrated by his family for not paying taxes. So he's got this mixed motivation going on here. And the reason why I want to talk about this mixed motivation is because what we're seeing in David's life here, all the things that God is going to correct through his life. The remarkable thing about King David's life is that we see it operating at two levels. We see what the public sees when David is a great warrior, he's a wise king, etc., etc. He builds palaces, he's a great builder of, um, of community and establishing the culture of Israel. We get to see all of that, but we also get to see inside the heart of this guy. And the remarkable thing is about what we see when he's a young man is not that flash. His motivations were relatively carnal, shall we say. Even though he presented himself as being this faith-filled warrior, he actually had a bit going on that needed correcting. And so what we're going to see is that God will continue uh, to invest, well, should we say it this way, investing in your future well-being by turning attack into spiritual maturity. So here's an attack that David has upon his character because his brothers are calling him out for his bad motivations. Different things like this are going on. And we find that David now is on a journey that is going to take him from one thing to the next that's going to grow him up on the inside. An example of this, another example from the Old Testament, is Joseph. Joseph, as we know, had this uh, privileged lifestyle, being raised up as the second oldest child amongst a whole heap of boys, 12 boys that went on to be the 12 tribes of Israel. And uh, him and his brother Benjamin were the two sons to his father's favorite wife, okay? 
Rachel. And so therefore we find ourselves in this place where David is spoiled. And when you read scripture and you think, oh gosh, here's God blessing this guy. In his early days, you've got to see him for what he was. He was spoiled. He was treated better than his brothers. He was given better clothes. And in this case, as we saw, an amazing cloak of many colors. But he also had something going on where he believed in himself, probably a little bit more than uh, the average Kiwi would anyway. He gathers his brothers together after he'd had a dream. And he said, listen, guys, I had a dream last night. Just thought I'd let you know uh, what happened. Just let you in on it. He said, we were all sheaves, sheaves of hay, sheaves of wheat, sorry, standing in a circle. And he said, and I was there too. And I was the biggest <laughs> sheave of wheat. And after a period of time, you all bowed down to me. You know, how to make friends with your brothers. Eh? And they were absolutely livid. It's like, you little turkey, who are you to tell us about a dream like that? You know, who do you think you are? No humility. And so knowing that uh, he was the favorite, knowing that he was probably going to end up inheriting more than the rest of them because dad just couldn't stop blessing this guy, they took him away out the back of the farm and uh, they said, we're going to kill him. No, 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 we not kill him. Oh, we'll stick him in a, in a big hole, a big um, cistern. And they said, yeah, that's a good idea. And then some folks went by uh, traveling down to Egypt and they ended up selling him into slavery. So David gets sold into slavery into the house or home of a, a guy called Potiphar, who is a, a biggest, big, big high-ranking official within Egypt. And um, he's there doing his duties diligently one day, and he's grown to be a handsome young guy, so handsome that Potiphar's wife thinks he's a bit of a right. And so she tries it on, and uh, being a, a fine, young, righteous guy, he just heads out of town, or heads out of the bedroom. But Potiphar's wife is now scorned. And they say there's, there's nothing worse than a woman scorned. I haven't come across one myself, but there is no such thing, no, nothing worse than a woman scorned. And so what does the scorned woman do? She goes and tells her husband that this guy, Joseph, that you made my slave, tried to attack me and sexually abuse me or rape me. And so he gets sent straight to jail, did not collect $200. And there... His life just goes from bad to worse to worse. The story goes on a little bit. But one day, God creates an opportunity for him to interpret a dream. And he's brought straight out of jail, right in front of the king of, uh, the, the, the king of Egypt. And, uh, and he interprets a dream. And he gets it dead right. And so the king immediately takes him and says, you're the wisest guy that I know. I'm going to make you the prime minister of Egypt. So from zero to hero. But all the while, God had been testing him, testing him, testing him, and putting him in a place where um, he was tested by his brothers, then he was tested by Potiphar's wife. And the ultimate end of the story is that he grows to be this enormous man of privilege and power, still God's man. And ultimately, he gets to reconcile with his brothers when they come to him looking for food. And uh, his, his final line, it's the best line of all, I think, in this whole story, says this. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. I am in the place of God. You intended to, to harm me, but God intended it for, you, for good to accomplish. Sorry, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. 
I will provide for you and your children. And he assured them and spoke kindly to them. And so David saves his brothers and their families, and uh, they ultimately set up and camp up there in Egypt just for a little while, free camping for about 400 years until they grow to such a powerful organization that we know the story. Uh, the Egyptians run scared of them and Moses is sent to rescue them. So what we've got going on here, again, is a story of challenges becoming the, 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 the material or the supply of food for a person's character. And we can, we can run from adversity or we can face up to adversity and say, this is an opportunity for me to grow. And so if an event turns up in your life and it's tough, you've got to interpret what's going on here. Because it's very easy to say, oh gosh, the devil's having a go at me and, uh, and therefore you run 100 miles away from what is actually an opportunity to test, to test and to build your character. See, the, um, the easy way for us to uh, go through this life is that we can pray for the easy way up or the easy way out. And uh, sadly, there's a lot of Christian doctrine around that says this is exactly what God owes us. This is exactly what Jesus has designed us for, is to be people who inherit every good and valuable thing. But if we do things the easy way, we end up being easy beats. Um, I can remember an unusual story. When I was working in the UK, I was working on a, uh, this is back in the 80s in my, my OE, I was working on a construction site. And um, some folks moved into, well, onto the edge of the construction site. They were Roma gypsies. And Roma gypsies were known to me. They were a complete foreign group of people to me. But these folks essentially spread all out Europe. And for centuries, they have been just living and moving, living and moving, and they have these caravans, and they raise their families together. Uh, but they were, I was told, you have to be wary of them, because they'll rip you off as soon as look at you. I thought, oh, okay. Anyway, the story went like this. In the subdivision, they were putting in a whole new pipeline of gas to go through the subdivision for everybody's homes. Uh, what a couple of Roma gypsy guys did was went and knocked on the houses that were new on this estate, didn't have gas fitted, and they said, hey, listen, for a £1,000, we'll run a line from your house and we'll hook into that gas line that's on the street there and we'll fix you up and you'll never have, an electricity, uh, never have a gas bill again. All right? Hmm. That's a pretty good idea. £1,000 up front. Yep, okay. So they did. And so a number of these folks, we all found out later, had done this. And uh, so... The day comes, your gas is on, ma'am. Thank you very much. Turn the, turn the, uh, the gas stove on. Boof, there it goes. Well, there was a problem. About a month later, six weeks later, some of these um, gas stoves stopped working. And uh, they called in somebody to have a look at it. And they dug it up and they found that all they'd done is buried a 9kg gas bottle in their backyard <laughs> and, and piped it through. Who were they going to tell? Who were they going to tell? Were they going to tell the police? No. Were they going to tell the gas board? No. They just sucked it up, embarrassed, and, and got, the, um, got the line put on properly. So I, I just thought it was a fantastic story. I mean, talk about being ripped off, but ripped off in the best way because they deserve to be ripped off sort of thing. <laughs> 
on Christmas Eve, I played a little bit of a clip from um, the, the uh, movie Fiddler on the Roof. And uh, one of the songs in the Fiddler on the Roof says, uh, goes, uh, If I was a rich man, all day long I'd fiddle if I was a wealthy man. And get towards the end of it, and there's this classic little line that says, Will it spoil some vast eternal plan if I was a wealthy man? And you look at that and you think to yourself, in the context of this movie, um, and you think, yeah, that's not a bad question from this guy singing, TVA singing this song. Would it really ruin some vast eternal plan, God, if I was wealthy? Surely not. And so we always look and we always hope and we always believe for the exception, don't we? I hear that because people pray over their lotto tickets, you know? Yeah. Yeah, they do. And so it's, um, it's always about what is God doing in my life? And we're looking for the easy way out. I know when I was first, um, first married, had children, had, had first home, and had a mortgage. Well, the mortgage had me, more likely. And um, trying to make ends meet. And so Makata and I would be praying, Lord, just stretch our budget, make it happen. How can we get this? And you just managed to, to squeak it together at the end of every payday. And then out of the blue, I got offered this opportunity to do a bread delivery run, started at four o'clock in the morning, and I could do three hours work, five days a week, and I'd still go to my day job at eight o'clock. I was young enough to handle it, wasn't a problem. And so God answered the question of how we were going to keep moving forward financially with an opportunity. you know. And uh, I just looked at that and said, hey, God, thanks for the opportunity. I'll take it. I wasn't looking for, um, for some sort of windfall or some sort of extravagant uh, outburst of whatever coming out of the sky, but it was an opportunity for us to be able to move forward with an opportunity that God had provided. James says this, and we've read this many times, But he says this, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all that they do. Now, one of the fascinating things is that if you go to God saying, God, I want to be of greater character, I want to have more resilience, I want to have more perseverance, I want to have more patience, which is the sort of thing you should be praying for because that's the person whom God wants you to be. And then you're double-minded because every time some challenge comes along, you go, oh, 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 that can't be of God because that hurts. Well, that's a little bit uncomfortable. Well, that's a little bit testing. You know, God was doing really well until the relatives turned up for Christmas. You know? <laughs> and, and all these normal, simple things are what God uses every day to grow us up. It's true, isn't it? But don't turn around and think that every time that you're having a testing time, that it's the devil on your case. It's not. One of the challenges that we all face is that we're part of the human race. And the human race, when I read Genesis 1, 2, and 3, it tells us that we're broken. We're fallen. 
And sometimes we break, get healed and break again. And it's an ongoing journey of life, isn't it? To continue to grow into the likeness of Jesus. And, and why do we have to keep growing? Well, I've always had this illustration in my mind, very simple illustration, and you've probably heard it before, but a tree can only grow in strength and length in keeping with the root system. And so therefore, if we're going to hold or carry more responsibility, it's our character underneath that has to actually support that. We see this time and time again with overpaid sports people or over-celebritized personalities who come through media or Hollywood or whatever. You know, give them more money than they know how to handle, give them more fame than they know what to do with, and crash, smash, burn they go. And it's real tragic because sometimes the results can be absolutely devastating on them and their families. But this is what is happening with us because if we have chinks in our armour, if we have things that are going to take away from us with regards to our, our character, um, it means that we're going to fail and let people down at the inappropriate time, let God down at an inappropriate time. And so we saw this, as we say, with David's life. David was doing really well as a king, but the, the chink in his armour was women. And if we know the story about how he fell into adultery with Bathsheba, then he ended up murdering her husband to try to cover that up, and the whole thing went downhill really, really badly. But the simple truth is, if the tree isn't balanced, then it breaks. Let's just be reminded of what Job said. Blessed is the one whom God corrects. So do not despise the discipline of the Almighty, for he wounds, but he also binds up. He injures, but his hands also heal. It's a powerful, powerful verse there, eh? Powerful verse. See, it's the sort of verse that you don't stick on your wall at home and go, oh Lord, thank you for your promises. But why don't we? We're serious about our faith. Yeah? We'd rather have Jeremiah 29.11, eh? It's all for free. Anyway, I won't go there. Well, I did. Back to David. So for David, of course, he starts off as a child, a spiritual child, but he has the skills of a man. Yeah, you got that? Spiritual child. We've seen that because the motivation behind killing Goliath was miserable to say the least. God, glory, and girls. But he had the skills of a man. So he became incredibly popular amongst Israel. He led the armies and did well. And, uh, and yet he had to continue this journey of growing up, otherwise you'd be no good. So investing in your future well-being by turning attack into spiritual maturity is what David had to do. And all of us need to look at this and say, hey, someone's having a go at me. Someone's telling lies about me. Someone's got my misfortune as their fortune. And here we are looking at, the, through, looking at this in the eyes or the barrel of an opportunity to grow. But if we simply squawk and yell and scream every time someone and somebody doesn't like us or somebody says something bad about us, we'll never get past the emotion of the moment. We won't, we'll get into the, won't get into the spiritual dynamics of the growth that is being provided for us. So let's just have a look at how the story unfolded for David. We've got lots of stories in David's life that could be used as an example for this, but I like this particular one and you'll see why. David was still a relatively young man. He'd already uh, taken the armies to battle and won huge number of battles. Uh, he had married the king's daughter. That hadn't gone so well. They needed a bit of counselling, but that's, that's all right. That's how a bit of a testing time for David there. But he gets chased 
out of the palace when a spear comes flying past him thrown by his father-in-law. So if you thought your Christmas was bad, and David just manages to turn to one side, in the wall, and David's out of there, gone. And so he takes a bunch of men, well, he finds a bunch of men who are rat bags, just rebels, just living in the hills, in the Valley of Crags, or the Valley of Goats, or the Valley of Engedi, as others refer to it. And it's a miserable, miserable place to live. It's dry, it's barren, it's just full of brambles and prickles and bushes and dry little caves. And he's living up there, essentially keeping away from King Saul, who's hellbent on killing him. And Saul is taking his army up this valley. And David is in one of the caves with his men. And he's right at the back of the cave, and they can see the army down there, so they're pretty nervous about it. But all of a sudden, Saul has a call, a call of nature. And he comes running up to the, um, the cave, and I can imagine his uh, footman would have gone, uh, do you want us to come with you? And he'd be like, no, no, I can do this on my own, thanks. And he ripped up into the cave, and David's men all saw this. And they're like, dude, check this out. God is delivering your enemy right into our presence here. We can kill him. And David's like, don't even think about it. Don't even think about it. But what happens is, as we won't go into too much detail here, but as Saul is doing his business, um, David creeps up behind him, takes out his, his knife, and he cuts off a corner of Saul's cloak. Okay. Saul wanders outside of the cave, and now this is what happens. Afterward, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. And he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. Then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, My Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. He said to Saul, Why do you listen when men say David is bent on harming you? This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lay my hand on my Lord because he is the Lord's anointed. May the Lord judge between you and me and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me. But my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evildoers comes evil deeds. So my hand will not touch you. Against whom has the king of Israel come out? Are you pursuing? Who are you pursuing? A dead dog, a flea. And when David finished saying this, Saul asked, Is that your voice, David, my son? And he wept aloud. You are more righteous than I, he said. You have treated me well, but I've treated you badly. Wow. So what can we see here? We can see in a relatively short period of time, from the time David was maybe a young teenager, teenager to maybe a 20-year-old, stuff had moved significantly in his life. And so the testing times that David had been put under by God, by his circumstances, had caused him to rearrange his values in such a way that he was no longer searching for a whole lot of praise, no longer searching for a whole lot of uh, 
um, man-made examples of, you know, false pride and different things like that. He had allowed God to sift him. And he could see what God had done. God had put Saul in his place as the king. But by doing so, he had also said, this man is my anointed king and you are to touch him. In other words, God is saying, if the time comes for me to take out Saul, I'll take care of that, not you. In the meantime, you're simply to move and operate in a way that is honoring to me and honoring to this person, Saul. And yet we see in those final words what uh, Saul recognized was going on when he said, you have treated me well, I have treated you badly. And, um, and in doing so, Saul is acknowledging that David is a better man than him. And here is the reality of this. Here is an older guy, Saul, who had all of the opportunities that a, a king would get from his kingdom. And yet he never used that to develop his character. He never used that to develop his inner life, which allows him to grow into a person God wanted him to be. So he was jealous, he was envious, he was angry, he had bad temper, he was selfish, he was uh, full of his own self-importance. And so what ultimately, um, the roots of his tree didn't grow at all, but the responsibilities of his kingdom continued to grow. And there came a time when God said, that's it, enough's enough. And he died in battle with his son Jonathan. So for David, what he'd done was simply this. He'd been investing in his future, in his future well-being by turning attack into spiritual maturity. And so one of the huge crazy makers that you will come across consistently in your life as a Christian is that you will know trouble. Jesus promised you that. You will know persecution. Jesus promised you that. And you'll know that um, God is wanting to challenge you to change you so that you can build perseverance and long-suffering and patience into your life that ultimately produces a perfection that God is after. It's a wonderful promise to say that we can deal with these things as we own them and face up to them. But don't ever turn around and say, the devil's testing me, when it's actually God's work in your life for something that he may have been chasing you on for year after year after year, because that's what's holding you back. So I think spiritual testing can be a crazy maker for some people, or it can be a beautiful thing for somebody else as you face up to the fact that God doesn't wish you any harm, he wishes you good. And that sometimes the discipline that he brings is actually his love and action. So don't ever be fooled. Don't ever let it drive you crazy when God's at work. Let's stand for prayer. God, we all know and feel the touch of your hand when you're laying your finger upon things that um, we need to look at, we need to address, we need to change. And we thank you that within Scripture there are, there are people there who are fully exposed to us because they have their story written in a way that we can see the outside and the inside. And as we see the likes of David and how he's prepared to grow, to become more like you, we're encouraged and we're strengthened by that. As we see stories like Joseph and how you took somebody on a downward journey only to raise them up, we can take great heart that the journey that we're on, which may look very, very challenging for us, is actually a part of the journey that you're on to help us to be the people you call us to be. So let us not despise the day of small beginnings. Let us look to you, the author and perfecter of our faith, and recognize that he who has begun a good work in us is faithful to complete it until the day of Christ.
Lord God, it's so easy to look in the wrong direction. And yet, as we look up and see your hand in our lives, we're reminded that you've taken us from, from glory to glory. You're building in our lives fresh, exciting new things. And we're just so grateful, Lord, that you call us Father and you love us. Love us enough to discipline us. Love us enough to, 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 to harm and heal, to cut and to bring healing. We thank you for these promises because we're reminded that it's a loving act. And so it's, a, it's something that you've given to us as a gift. So, Lord, allow us to interpret what we have in light of all of that, that we might be your people and that you might be our God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.